When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the impact of the new HIMARS weapon systems that Ukraine is using to strike at Russian targets far behind the front line. We also analyze the Russian army's faltering recruitment efforts, and we interview activist and fundraiser Pavlo Bondarenko, who tells us about his life in Ukraine, his efforts to help aid the Ukrainian army, and a host of other topics. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 13th of July, day 140. And today, I'm joined by senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, and activist Pavlo Bondarenko. Just to start, can I ask Roland and Francis for the latest updates from the front lines and across Europe? Um, the latest from the front line is is kind of more of the same. Lots and lots of uh, ordnance flying around. Um, there's just been reports of two Russian cruise missiles, presumably cruise missiles, hitting Zaporizhia. Uh, which is one of Ukraine's major cities. There was a very intensive bombardment um, along the line of contact in Donbass last night. Um, reports of extremely heavy attacks, particularly on the Ukrainian-held uh, city of Bakhmut. Um, uh, as I'm sure anyone who's following this uh, yesterday will be aware of the Ukrainians claiming responsibility for the um, absolutely enormous arms depot explosion in Novokakova. Um, yesterday, but not much in the way of uh, ground changing hands. Um, the, the British Ministry of Defence says um, Russia is continuing to take these very small incremental advances, but the the general kind of pause in in movement on the ground uh, seems to be holding at the moment. Thank you very much, Roland Francis. Would you like to add to that? Yes, well, it's been uh, another eventful 24 hours. I, I've wanted to focus a little bit on some of the diplomatic elements that have been taking place um, today and last night. Um, one of the most interesting, which I'll start with, is 
Russia uh, have said that they will continue to send gas to Europe via Ukraine beyond its current deal, which is due to end in 2024, as long as European countries still want Russian gas and Ukraine's national transit system works. Now, on the face of it, it sounds fairly innocuous, but this is clearly in the same week when uh, annual maintenance, in inverted commas, is taking place on Nord Stream 1, which is having, which is, you know, having a major impact on uh, on supplies of gas to countries, particularly Germany, which I'll turn to in a moment. This is clearly a, a, an attempt by Russia to flex its muscles and say, you know, we're we're very happy to continue to provide uh, you with energy if you if you want it. You know, this war could be over tomorrow, but it will be reliant on us still being able to operate within Ukraine. So uh, a, a clearly um, provocative statement there. I wanted to mention Germany because. Um, the we had a piece in the paper yesterday and it's still online today which i highly recommend people read by um distinguished journalist daniel johnson who just points out to for the benefit of 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 leaders in Brit, uh, of readers in britain and also um more broadly around the world just quite how severe the situation is in germany as a consequence of being reliant on russian gas and oil so just to put this in perspective um it's the I mean, some of the figures here are just absolutely shocking. So Germany is facing potentially the worst slump um, since the 1940s, with the economy shrinking by more than 12% and production in the flagship car economy collapsing by 17% and up to 6 million jobs at risk. Now, on top of this, you've got, like many other European countries, family fuel bills already set to rise by €2,000 per year. And there's... But due to this, there are plans to have to provide emergency accommodation in town halls for those who are unable to heat their homes. Um, there's also talk about the government telling people to spend no more than five minutes in the shower or potentially sharing a bath with a friend. I mean, this is remarkable for Europe's foremost economy. And I just wanted to highlight this and, and say, you know, that as as Daniel makes clear in his piece, Germany sort of once admired and and envied is now a sort of textbook example, really, of how much damage a misguided foreign and energy policy can do. So I thought that was a, an interesting um, development in light of the energy front line, which, of course, we've talked about a lot on this podcast in the past. Something else that's just relevant to this, and I just wanted to provide another update on another front line, which, of course, is the food front. Um, now, uh, we didn't touch on this much last week, but it has been an ongoing issue clearly within the United Nations. Previous discussions have been taking place that have been suggested there might need to be some sort of military option, such as the severity of um, of the nature of the food crisis. And indeed, we spoke yesterday briefly about the burning of crops, which Russia, Russia is undertaking in Ukraine, clearly again to help um, uh, increase its sort of chances of putting pressure on on foreign countries to to end this war prematurely. Um, but the development on this is uh, Russia, Ukraine, and Turkish military delegations are set to meet UN officials in Istanbul for talks on a possible deal to resume the safe exports of Ukrainian grain from the Black Sea port of Odessa. Now, uh, obviously, this will be, have to be a uh, a very serious and high-level conversation between all parties because without there being a discussion, it would be quite possible that there would be ships ships that would be potentially 
in the firing line um, and would be eligible to being being sunk. Um, and so obviously trying to avoid that at all costs. Um, apparently the concern for the Russians is stopping weapons shipments. But of course they would say that. And I wanted to just sort of talk about this a little bit further because one of the challenges here is it is not going to be in Russia's interests to end this food crisis aside from the financial benefits which are of course with given the challenges the Russian economy is facing is very severe and may well be a factor in trying to resume some kind of grain export from Ukraine and from Russia itself broadly speaking the benefits for Russia of there not being a a solving a solution to this food crisis is that it does put increasing pressure on the international community, which has been condemning Russia, um, to to uh, in in terms of ending the war early, much like the energy crisis. It is one of the few benefits uh, that Russia has uh, had, or I say benefits, more of a advantages in this conflict that uh, that that Russia has had, and so I'm not optimistic on the energy front. And I'm not optimistic on uh, on the food front either. But clearly, much negotiations taking place on both as we speak today. And so that's why I wanted to talk about them. Thank you very much, Francis. That was very comprehensive. Just before I bring Pavlo in, can I ask Roland just a couple of questions? Um, there's been an interesting report in the, in the Telegraph yesterday on... Uh, the problems that Vladimir Putin is facing recruiting soldiers for for the army, uh, and he's even turned to to raiding prisons. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, as we know, this war is now about attrition, basically, um, and both sides have got to replace men lost in the field. We're we're seeing a pattern. Just to set the context, um, it's kind of the pattern actually that the military thinkers have thought would the Third World War would follow, which is. The professional armies would be depleted very, very quickly, and you're going to have to replace, um, replenish the ranks, um, basically with uh, with volunteers, raw recruits, um, and we can see the Ukrainians doing that, and the Russians are definitely, definitely having to do that. So, um, very interesting things popping up. Um, the one that's really caught people's eyes: this video from a prison um, in Adyger, um, a Russian republic, um, where where one of the prisoners using good salty prisoners kind of slang is talking about how guys have just been recruited um to go and fight in ukraine um he says you know ah oh vov is off as well as he um you know everyone's going off there to fight or steal or something um interspersed with a language i'll try not to use on this podcast um so recruiting from prisons um uh, the, the British government obviously playing this up. They want to maximise any kind of difficulties the Russians are facing, to, um, noting how a lot of recruitment has come from um, uh, the poorest parts of Russia, um, noting that you know you don't really recruit from Moscow and St. Petersburg because the war is um, less popular there. I mean, the truth is that Moscow and St. Petersburg and places like that have a strong history of kind of avoiding the draft and that poorer parts of the country tend to supply troops and that that's been true for many many years i think that's quite um important context um the other interesting thing um is just how much these people are being paid so uh pmc wagner the infamous mercenary group um which is doing a lot of the fighting in ukraine has put out advertisements um they are offering contracts of you know something like two hundred and forty thousand rubles a month plus bonus Right now, that's that's that. This is a country where you know a lot of people would be would be happy to make forty thousand rubles a month. So it's a lot of money being put on the table um, to to attract people to go and fight. Um, Russia's opponents in this war are saying 
you know, this is evidence of desperation. Um, and, and it certainly looks like they are, they've got real concerns about getting enough men into uniform and into the trenches. Thanks, Roland. Um, just before we go to Francis, who I know has a few uh, thoughts on some other diplomatic um, news, can I just ask uh, just a, your quick take on, on the HIMARS? I mean, we've seen them being deployed now for, for several days. And what's, what's your take on their effectiveness and, and, and the damage they're doing to the Russian army? So the, the HIMARS have become not only a feature of the battlefield, but a feature of the, the information space, the propaganda war, whatever you want, want to call it. Um, so they've definitely had a big impact. And when we talk about HIMARS, really, we're talking not just about the HIMARS. The HIMARS are one system. The Americans have given the Ukrainians eight of these systems. They're very accurate. They're very long range. But there's also a bunch of other Western provided high precision, long range artillery systems, which are doing the same kinds of jobs. And they seem to be working in concert um, with things like uh, Soviet style Tochka U cruise missiles, which the Ukrainians already had. Um, but in short, they, the Ukrainians have been using these weapons to run a, a very, very systematic campaign of strikes deep in the Russian rear, focusing on uh, three things ammunition dumps, fuel dumps, and command posts. And the idea is we cannot match them gun for gun um, yet at the front, but if we can starve the Russians of uh, ammunition, it's going to make it much more difficult for them to fire off. You know, they were firing 20,000 shells a day at some point. Um, if you can stop that, those shells getting to the front, and that's going to affect the Russian war effort. And of course, if you're taking out generals, command points, it's a very centralized system, the Russian army, um, very top-down, big emphasis on you know doing what you're told as opposed to kind of initiative of commanders in the field um that is going to be disruptive and it, it i mean the the results are they are dramatic there's no other way for it I mean, people would have seen um the this enormous mushroom cloud rising over uh, Novokarkova um a couple of days ago last night there was another one um bang in the middle of uh, the city of Luhansk um the russians are responding claiming these are these are factories or or, or um, civilian areas or um, fertilizer warehouses, this kind of thing, um, and that there are civilian casualties. I wouldn't be surprised if there are civilian casualties, quite honestly, because these things are enormous. When they explode, they go off in a very, very dramatic way. And, you know, there are people nearby. Um, is it working? Well, if you look, so NASA has this website where you can look at kind of wildfires it's meant to monitor kind of wildfires around the world but you can also use it to kind of monitor the you know satellites showing up hot spots fire in southern and eastern ukraine and that's dropped off dramatically over the past four days which may or may not show a, a drop off in um in russian shelling what we do know is that on the the kind of russian blogosphere which is surprisingly free um, and and kind of uncensored for now. The Russian military blogosphere, which is full of guys who, you know, very closely embedded with Wagner or, or, or the Russian army, quite outspoken, um, unrelentingly pro-Russian, unrelenting propagandists, but nonetheless, you know, these are guys who speak their minds and have definitely clashed with the military when, when they think things are being brushed under the carpet. Um, and the discussion there is, okay, we are being hammered. This is really bad. And why can't we do anything about it? And the consensus seems to be on the Russian side, look, A, our missile defences don't work, so we're helpless. 
things like the S400, which was an extremely meant to be cutting edge, the most advanced air defense missile interception system on the market. Russia sold them all over the world, tried to. Um, it just, for some reason, cannot intercept um, these kinds of strikes. So they're helpless. Um, so the question is, what do you do? And there's a debate going on about the responses. The responses include dispersal. So move your artillery dumps, your, your ammunition dumps to you know different places, keep them smaller, camouflage them, make them more difficult to find, all of that. Now, there's a problem with that. And the problem is that Russia's artillery logistics um, are basically reliant on these very huge dumps. Basically, Russian logistics is based on the railways. If you look at the failure of the um, offensive against Kiev early in the war, it kind of corresponds with a failure to take the railheads. They didn't take Sumy, they didn't take Kharkiv. Um, those railway lines were meant to sustain um, the Russian advance. They couldn't, and so they were loading trucks. When when you get the artillery to to the railhead, you take the the shells off the train, you put it on the trucks. Trucks take it to the uh, to the frontline units. Those trucks were having to travel much much longer distances than expected. Um, they took a long time to get through. The Russians weren't getting enough ammunition. and Those convoys were vulnerable to ambush. Now, in Donbass, it's worked. The railways have delivered a huge amount of artillery, and it's sustained this, this, this incredible intensity of fire that's driven the Ukrainians back. Um, now, that was fine, as long as those big ammunition dumps that you end up developing near the railheads are invulnerable, and now they are vulnerable. So if you're going to move them back out of range of the HIMARS, you know, so you've got to move back, you know, at least kind of 80 kilometers from the front line. You're back to this point where you're going to be loading things onto trucks, taking them a very long way. The roads in Donbass are absolutely atrocious, by the way, and that's before the war. Um, it could take you hours to cover, you know, a, a couple of hundred kilometers on what should be um, what on the map is a normal road. So that's going to have an impact. Um, a lot of people talk about also that Russia hasn't modernized its logistics, right? Not, no forklift trucks, everything's done by hand. Um, the ammunition comes in wooden boxes, so that takes up a lot of room, so you're not transporting as much ammunition as you should be. I mean, I personally don't really think that is the problem. I think the problem is that until now they were operating um, as if these, these ammunition dumps were invulnerable. They are vulnerable. There doesn't seem to be much they can do about it. Um, and however they respond, it's going to be very difficult for them, I think, to maintain the pace of the pace of fire, just the intensity of fire, which has basically underwritten their military success so far. But we've yet to see how this is actually going to play out. We're still going to have to watch for the next couple of weeks, maybe over summer, to confirm that that is what's happening, that the, that the Russians are in trouble and they can't move forward anymore. Well, thank you very, very much for that, Roland. That was incredibly comprehensive and um, hopefully for our listeners really sh shone some light over the issues uh, the Russian army are facing in dealing with these, these HIMARS and, and other pieces of artillery delivered to the Ukrainian army from, from Western nations. Um, our guest for today is Pavlo Bondarenko. Pavlo, thank you so much for joining us. Um, just to start off, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us, tell us where you're calling from in Ukraine and what the atmosphere is, is like there. Uh, hi there, my name is Pavel Bondarenko. I'm a civil activist and uh, a podcast producer, but now I'm trying to be a volunteer who actively help in uh, Ukrainian army with high-tech gear. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm coming you from Kiev. 
uh, we currently have uh, area active uh, air rate alert alarm so uh, i might be go to a basement um, if uh, there will be some explosions but hope that everything will be okay uh, this is like the the, the, the shot in uh, bio uh, that i can provide you Thank you very much. Can you tell us about, um, you say you're an activist and you, we know that you're fundraising high-tech gear for the army. Um, what, what kind of gear is that and how did you get into that? Uh, yeah, uh, mostly what we are doing is uh, drones, uh, optics and uh, medical supplies. So um, um, air, air intelligence is uh, like a really important part of this uh, of this uh, war because uh, we have this this so-called war of artillery. So we need eyes and we need a lot of uh, data together to understand what we should do. Uh, so drones are a big part of um, of activities. Also optics like thermal cameras, uh, rangefinders, they are also a really important uh, thing. And uh, there's constant lack of this stuff. And it's, uh, it's, act- it's actively um, uh, lost by, by our army. So we need to restock uh, the supply and also medical medical gears like individual first aid kits and uh, some uh, stuff for hospitals. Uh, they are also in, uh, in, in active use. So we need to resupply them. We work like a small uh, volunteer initiative. Uh, this is actually an initiative by running by me, my girlfriend and my mother. And we are working like with uh, 15 uh, squads uh, and we are working them on uh, like a regular basis. So we try to resupply them with all the stuff we need, and uh, we not 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 like a big volunteering fund. We are working like in more rapid way, but in a much smaller size than big Ukrainian volunteer funds. And you've 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 been uh, been an activist and been volunteering since not just for this war, but since 2014. Can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Revolution of Dignity and and your role in it? Yeah, actually, uh, um, my plan uh, when I, uh, when Revolution of Dignity happened in 2013, I was 18 years old, and then my plan was to uh, to finish university in Ukraine and move somewhere in Europe. Uh, I, I supposedly wanted to go to to the Netherlands and to become some kind of uh, like music producer guy or something like that. Uh, but then um, this decision uh, by that time Ukrainian government ran by uh, Yanukovych. Uh, uh, came that uh, we were gonna join this um, this Russian backed uh, um, union, and uh, this was actually like a fire started for me, and this is why the revolution of dignity happened, uh, and uh, this is uh, the first time when I understood that uh, actually how I feel how it feels to be a citizen of my country. Uh, so uh, it's, it started with uh, with desire to be a part of Europe, and then it shifted to desire to be a part of uh, open civil society. And um, this is like a really important uh, stage of my life because it shifted uh, a lot of things. Also, this is what the first time when I saw dead bodies and a lot of blood and I understood that these uh, things like freedom and dignity are paid uh, by a really high price and they are paid by, by lives. And this is actually what uh, motivates me to continue my efforts to build a strong civil society in Ukraine because uh, the price is too damn high uh, because a lot of people were murdered, murder pe- people were killed. Uh, and uh, this is why I continue my efforts as a civil activist and a volunteer. In June, you, you tweeted, you said, today I've realized that I've completely forgotten what it is to, fe- um, what it is to feel like being safe. 
I wanted I wanted to ask for you. I mean, this is true for you, but I imagine also millions and millions of other Ukrainians. This is we're in we're in July now, and the war still rages on. How how do you see you and your friends and your family dealing with the pressure of the conflict? How do you get through it? Uh, you just need to to to. to to do basic security, just not ignoring air uh, uh, raid alerts. alerts. Uh, if you have uh, uh, if you have a possibility to evacuate from active uh, running part of like uh, offensive, then you should go. And uh, it's not. Uh, I'm, not I'm not thinking about a lot of my security. It's like a constant. You're, you're absolutely right. It's it's, it's uh, uh, constant pressure. Uh, but uh, now it's a little bit better because, uh, like in first months, uh, especially when uh, offensive was going on on Kiev region, it felt like uh, nonstop uh, thing. We were sweeping for three, four hours at our best because we uh, were doing uh, a lot of stuff, uh, and uh, war war felt really close because we I actually, we actually heard the, like explosions and all of the stuff uh, on a regular basis. Uh, but then uh, when uh, this 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 stage of war. Uh, ended and um, more, the biggest action started on east of Ukraine. It became more distant. Uh, they and uh, it became more manageable because you get in a routine. You understand your capacity. You understand that you can uh, fundraise that amount of money and, and not uh, other amount of money. So uh, you understand uh, and uh, some basic planning appears. Uh, the base, uh, the 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 most uh, productive thing for me uh, to counter. Um, this pressure is uh, planning. So I have, uh, for, now, for now, I have like this great opportunity to plan for one week in advance because at the beginning of uh, this stage of war, we were we were planning for in advance for hours, and now it's like a little bit more controllable, uh, but still a lot of pressure. So uh, it's it it takes effort to get a proper sleep, to get the proper food, to get the proper physical exercises but uh it's it feels like uh, my responsibility as a volunteer because if uh, i'm in uh, good shape i can be productive and help uh, ukrainian army and also i also understand that uh, uh this war will will be go on so uh if uh, i need to to grab a gun and to become a soldier i also need to be prepared and uh, in good fitness so this is actually like the general overview of how I'm dealing with the pressure. If I could just jump in there, it's fascinating hearing your perspective. Um, uh, my, I've got so many questions, uh, hard to know where to start really. I suppose that my first one would just be, as somebody who has been involved in this work for much longer than than just this year, did the invasion come as a surprise to you or or the opposite? Was this something that you'd been expecting for some time? I was expecting it for some time. Thank you for your question. Uh, actually, my boss started, like, my mom called me and said that uh, she heard explosions. I looked in, in Twitter that uh, the war has started, and I just went to a storage room, uh, grabbed a box with prepared stuff because I bought some food supplies, some batteries, some other, like, uh, stuff to survive for three days. Uh, because it's the reality of Ukraine that you need to you you live in this constant pressure, so you need to be prepared for this kind of stuff. And there were like no panic. And uh, also, this is like a really strange but uh, funny feeling that at first uh, few uh, weeks I felt like this is like long term, uh, long forget feeling because it was all the same that was happening in 2014. And um, 
in terms of uh, like uh, mental and uh, physical awareness, this uh, stage of voice is much easier for me because um, there are a lot of patterns patterns of uh, stuff that happened in 2014. So um, you 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 get used to that, and uh, there are not a lot of, of shock of um, like mm, um, you adapted to this stuff. So uh, it's much easier uh, to 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 keep um, like pace. Uh, the, in, in this stage than in 2014 uh, but yes um, like most of people who are active part of civil society or uh, society in general uh, was preparing for this uh, for this offensive uh, the only question was when because uh, everybody thought that it will be happen in January but uh, then uh, we uh, the February, it moved to February and actually uh, I was Fully prepared for for that stuff, uh, but I continued my uh, like um, uh, my my business efforts and other efforts in a simple pace because there was no um, no space for fear because you need to keep your job doing and then if there were games then you you should to react to it. Thank you. And just one other question relating to that, just for the benefit of our listeners, as somebody who's been involved in this for for a long time um, and has seen this coming, just what, how has Ukrainian society itself, perhaps even Ukrainian government, uh, changed in, in, in recent years? With the election, obviously, of President Zelensky, for many people, it, it was a sort of vote against the Ukrainian political establishment. But just try, I'm just very interested in how you've sensed a, a feeling in Ukrainian government and, and attitudes towards the government over the time that you've been involved in your work. Okay, um, I would I would say that uh, uh, I won't I won't judge by government. I will judge by cases because uh, like um, the two the, the two most me, me, media uh, mo, like um, the the, mo, the the most uh, the biggest case that they got the biggest media reach was the case of murdering Katerina Hanzuk. Uh, she was a prominent. Uh, uh society activist and politician in Kherson. Uh, she was murdered by the, uh, with uh, one liter of, of acid. And uh, also there was an attempt of, um, of um, bringing to jail Serhii Sternenko, uh, also a Ukrainian uh, activist who, was, uh, who had three times uh, assassinated. But survived, and um, in this time, and I don't, um, I don't like uh, try to uh, give um, impression about the government, uh, about uh, Poroshenko, Zelensky, or I, I I'm working uh, to make the system better. So uh, in this, in this definite case, surnames uh, didn't uh, give uh, a big under- uh, didn't give a big help to understand what is going on. Uh, I think that uh, like uh, the biggest thing that was happening is was uh, the problem with uh, police uh, system and uh, with courts, and uh, because this is like uh, the two biggest reforms that Ukraine still needs to to move on, because we need to reload again our uh, police uh, and uh, we need to reload our courts. Uh, there are a lot of effort to make it happen, but uh, due to um, some um, some Russian-baked people, some uh, just regular corruptionists. Uh, this uh, thing is moving really slow. But um, what was what what was happening that a lot of things were improving, but uh, still like basic reforms uh, need to be to be made. And I think uh, this is like 
responsibility of all civil society and not just one politician. So uh, this is like the overview that I can give you at the moment. That's so fascinating um, to hear your take on that. Um, my question is, you made you made a reference there to saying that you want to work to make the system better and that transcends whoever is president. What does the perfect Ukrainian state look like to you? What are you working towards? I think that um, that dignity and justice are implemented in in uh, of the of the of the basic principles of how uh, government works and how uh, like social and economic uh, policies are made and um, because there are a big problem I think not only in Ukraine but uh, all all in the world that there are a lot of written promises but they are actually not baked by any any mechanism any any um, anything about without except what so I think uh, the per- the first uh, and the biggest uh, um, result for me will be justice in courts uh, that uh, if uh, someone some person is corrupted and it ends ends up uh, in court uh, then uh, he goes to jail uh, he didn't uh, await uh, the punishment and runs away away from country. I think that's like be a good marker of that uh, we are succeeded in um, in a, in a building a better system. Because if uh, corruption is not punished, uh, there will be no uh, uh, further movement uh, in a building better society. Uh, also, I think that uh, like um, we, uh, like uh, when people st- stop fearing police and uh, will uh, treat police with respect. Um, then uh, and ge- general approval and trust in society will be big in the police uh, in the police area. We will be able to end this like a security request of society and then uh, move on to uh, be- building better, better education, um, uh, implementing uh, more uh, and bigger culture activities. Uh, you you will argue with me that uh, you need to do all of this stuff uh, in. Uh, like uh, in parallel, I agree with you, but uh, um, this is like my priority looks like because I think um, Ukrainians uh, are doing this mistake of uh, forgetting and forgiving and uh, not trying to uh, bring to the end uh, the corruption that is happening in, in uh, Ukrainian government and society. Thank you very much, Pavlo, for that. I've just got a question just to bring you back to your fundraising. Uh, it's sort of a simple question, really, but from from the west i think we see lots and lots of people and lots and lots of ukrainians fundraising so can you just tell us how how do you actually do that and have you seen a difference over the months in terms of the amounts people are donating yeah sure um like um this is like the big uh, thing that a lot of people from um like europe or america can understand uh, how you can donate to a physical person not like um like a big organization and uh, why uh, Ukrainians trust uh, completely com- complete strangers uh, but yes uh, this is actually how, how, how we do it uh, uh, with my girlfriend and with my mother uh, we just uh, gathering money on our private accounts at the moment because uh, the amount of donation in our opinion is not so um, big uh, to build uh, like a legal fund or NGO um and uh we fundraise mostly via twitter uh so it's like we have like um like a weekly request of stuff that we need to 
uh, to purchase from uh, squads we are supporting. We build this like a uh, spreadsheet. Uh, we get the prices in Europe uh, because uh, stuff in Europe is much cheaper. And uh, we have friends in Europe who are able to procure it. And then we transfer it uh, from Europe to, uh, to Ukraine. And uh, these donations came from like random people from internet uh, some of them are new uh, are my friends but mostly um, i like to say that uh, now um, that my, my reputation uh, and uh, works for me and people have a trust uh, for what for activity that they uh, made in, in previous years so they trust me money and uh, this is my big mission to prove their trust and this is why we try to uh, to make everything every process as transparent as, as possible and also uh, sometimes uh, like it's not possible to give like a proper um, uh, report um, on and to, to give us like uh, fancy photos of soldiers holding the stuff that was purchased, uh, but we try to do do our best to to, to be transparent. And uh, this is how um, a lot of people are fundraising. This is like not like really unique situation. A lot of people do this stuff, and I'm really glad because uh, uh, with every new person who. Uh, raises money it uh, puts a pressure from us because we we knew that there are other people uh yes there are big uh, problem with with uh, scammers but uh, this is a natural process and uh, in terms of uh, like um uh like um, bu building uh, a legal legal fund to prevent uh, scam uh, this is actually doesn't work in ukraine because a few cases of a big scam were from illegal entities like uh, like um, like like funds so um, this is and this is how and this is what uh, people from west don't understand when they donate to international red cross or some other big um, big in international organization and uh, but uh, i understand why they do that because it is like a, a really different background of understanding understanding how things work thank you very much pavlo i've just got one more question i'm i'm in, in case so i'll ask that and then roland and francis if you'd like to come in after that um my final question is obviously you're as you said you fundraise on twitter you're on twitter a lot um what would you want our listeners particularly those maybe in america or the uk in the west of europe or australia what what would you want them to really understand about your experience and the experience of ukrainians um at the moment that that they won't understand unless that you know unless unless you tell us uh, I think this is like uh, like uh, constant desire to blame uh, like others on uh, your problem and uh, constant expecting um, other people, other countries to work uh, to protect you. I guess, and uh, I think that uh, it's our responsibility as Ukrainians to protect ourselves, and uh, it's it's no big deal to ask help and we and I greatly appreciate people who actually actually help us with uh, weapons with uh, spreading information mining all the stuff and uh, but this is like our responsibility we are we are like self established and uh, and 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 pretty strong civil society that has a lot of experience on of practice of building civil society and the practice of defending our rights we we know how to do it we need help but we like um we're not this type of 
lost uh, society that needs guidance. Uh, we we are happy to to get the feedback, but um, not like uh, lecturing us on the stuff how we should do that or, or do something uh, uh, without getting a reply from us. And uh, also, I think that. Uh, uh, if you think that the biggest problem is the price of uh, gas or price of food, um, you don't get uh, the thing that the biggest problem is that um, we are constantly losing people. People are constantly murdered. And uh, and a lot of people are murdered because they try to, to solve the problem, for example, with, uh, with uh, bread. And um, the longer uh, we will avoid to understand the root of this problem and to try to to min minimize damage and not to try to, to to resolve the issue with Russia, the longer and we will suffer and um, a little and much more people will suffer. So I think I think this is like the two points I want to to tell to the world. Thank you very much for that, Pavlo. Can I just ask Roland and Francis? Uh, do you have any final questions for Pavlo? Yeah, I've, I've, hi, Pavlo. Hi. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot I could ask. I mean, I suppose my real question is going back to everything you were saying about um, dealing with the police and, and, and activism after my dad. I mean, you kind of said your war began, you know, in 2014 and, and, and you, you know, you were already kind of ready for this. I'm quite interested. I think, I think that's true for a lot of people, but I'm quite interested in, in the following, I mean, do, do you really see this as, in a way, a continuation of this war as a continuation of that struggle that, that began on Maidan with a lot of people like you basically coming out against corruption? And then, and the other thing is, before this war began, and I think you kind of touched on this, how optimistic, what was your kind of feeling before this began, before there was a, Russia invaded the second time, um, about the success of that campaign? And were you feeling lonely? Were you feeling like, God, we've put in all this effort over over eight years? And, and you know, you, you talked about 2018 and, and those attacks on journalists and things like that. Um, you know, how optimistic were you at that point about um, the changes Ukraine was going through? Or were, were you feeling a little bit demoralized? Okay, uh, thanks. Uh, uh, sure thing, this war is... Uh is a part of, of it's it's like a, a follow up of Maidan, uh, uh, and uh, this is this is completely clear to me because uh, Russia R Russian ideology can't let go of Ukraine and make it independent country, uh, but in terms of uh, like a second before the second stage of this war, um, it was like a, it was. Uh, a, like a delayed question, um, I, I, I don't understand how to, to, trans, to, to uh, translate it in uh, in English. But uh, everybody understood that it would happen, and uh, we need to prepare that uh, Russia won't disappear. It won't. Uh, it, it didn't. It, it won't pull out uh, their army, and uh, we just have like a breathing space to prepare us, ourselves to. Uh, to get get enough, enough of uh, resources, and uh, the the one question was how much time do we have? And when uh, build up first time happened, uh, I, I I think in 2021 in uh, in May. Uh, then it was like the first time when it was like a, a big alarm for us. 
but uh, when the final build up of uh, of uh, russians in uh, in in, uh, in belarus happened it was like just a, a, a question of, of weeks. So I think that uh, we nobody was depressed. Uh, everybody who was like following the processes that are happening in uh, our region and in our country will, was understanding that uh, it's just a matter of time and uh, it's our responsibility uh, to persuade our partners, to persuade uh, uh, international partners, to persuade uh, our um, citizens uh, and our friends to be prepared and to be aware of the situation. So uh, it's it, it's it's a lot of like um, like um, effort, and uh, it's, it's, it's it takes a lot of stress on, on your body and your mind, but not not a lot of despair. Just uh, I think more more anger than despair. I was yeah. Um... I was I was kind of interested in you know the kind of the process of kind of internal reform right the campaign for a new Ukraine you know setting aside the whole Russia thing you talked about you know corruption in the police um, all these kinds of things um, and I remember you know on, on my on my trips to Ukraine kind of since my dam um, you know coming across a degree of kind of disillusionment um, a little bit of fed upness like uh, have we actually managed to to kind of change the country, but we're still dealing with this, all these problems um, before. It's that kind of thing. I mean, where were you about on that kind of thing, especially considering what you said about um, those journalists being attacked in, in 2018? Uh, I, 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 I feel like disappointment and anger, but uh, also as a person, uh, I understand that uh, all the changes that we were made uh, starting from 2013, uh, really astonishing and uh, it takes a lot of time to build a proper society and uh, with what ukrainian society managed to do like in uh, in uh, nine years and even less uh, having an active offensive on its on its country uh, is is astonishing i um, and uh, the things were much worse in 2012 we have like uh, free country like not free country but peaceful country without war and all this stuff but actually the condition of civil society was much worse and uh, there were not there were not a lot of freedom and uh, it's uh, it's our price for delayed reforms uh, because uh, my uh, the generation of my parents didn't uh, knew uh, didn't have the skill set and uh, like uh, a mental um, understanding of what to do back in 90s uh, this is the price of uh, delayed reforms. So uh, this is why uh, the delays uh, in, in current reforms are frustrating me because I understand that it will be like a, a question for next generation. So the pace is uh, good, uh, but uh, there are a lot of uh, struggles and uh, a lot of things that uh, need constantly uh, monitored by civil society. And I think that we are doing pretty good, but uh, there are always a room for improvement. I just have one final question for you, Pavlo, which is you spoke about how you, you know, in a sense, you, this was never something that you want. The work you're doing now is not something that you necessarily wanted to do, but it's something you felt obligated morally to do. Assuming that war ends and, and you, peace is restored to Ukraine and sovereignty is restored to Ukraine, 
what would you like to do in, in an ideal world in this new Ukraine that you have been part of building? Uh, actually, <laughs> it's a really good question because I don't know. Because all uh, my conscious life, I was thinking about uh, my job uh, and uh, my way of uh, like getting money and uh, the stuff I was doing in terms of protecting and uh, building civil society. And uh, I actually didn't have a lot of time to to uh, have uh, to to think about what is what what I like. Uh, it was always what I need to do. Uh, but I think uh, in terms of uh, like what I want to do, I want to to, to join to to the government, I guess. But uh, it will be um, and to 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 be involved in reforms. Uh, I have experience of uh, being part of uh, Ministry of Healthcare uh, in Ukraine of Ukraine, sorry. And uh, it was a really interesting experience for me. So. I might be interested to join um, the government in the future, but only in terms when uh, there will be a really low corruption risks and uh, good salary. Because this is was this is why uh, I left uh, this uh, this government type of job uh, for for future. Because uh, to to be uh, to be in a government in Ukraine, you need to be resilient to corruption. You need to have enough money. Uh, to refuse a bribe and all of the stuff. Uh, so I think this is like uh, what uh, the conditions wh- when I will enter the government. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, I, 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 I think I only can, uh, at, this, at this point of life, I only can think about of how to improve society, how to give more power to it. And this is only the, the only thing that I'm interested in uh, to, uh, to build my future. Well, thank you very much, Pavlo. Thank you, Francis, for your questions. Uh, Roland, any further questions from you, or shall we go to our final thoughts? I, I have a question, if it's okay, and, and I know it's one please, that please. I, it's a, I, I know this is one that is kind of touched on kind of ad nauseum, and and I think Ukrainians and maybe to kind of get fed up with it, but I think it might help our listeners in a way to touch on this. Okay. Um, I, I was reading, I was reading um, a thread, Pavlo, that you, you wrote. You know, a while ago, saying that you know, after my dad, you, you, you were you were born as a you know born and raised as a Russian speaker. Russian is your native language, and then you chose to stop using Russian um, and switch to Ukrainian. Um, and the the language issue can be it can be hackneyed, it can be twisted for propaganda in various ways, it can be presented in a very um, you know two dimensional kind of way. But I, I was wondering if you could. Just your personal experience, like why did you make that decision? Okay, um, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, this is was uh, because I met uh, Ulana Suprun. Uh, she was uh, actually a former uh, minister of healthcare of Ukraine, but in 2014 she was uh, running this pe- NGO Patriot Defense that was in charge of um, of providing uh, individual first aid kits uh, for army. And she was uh, born and raised in America, but she is part of diaspora. So. so uh, she knew only English and Ukrainian, and this, this was like the first person in my life who, who couldn't understand Russian. And this is what the first time in my life when I asked the question in Russian, and she stared at me without understanding what 
did I uh, what what did I ask? And this is like a misconception that uh, uh, Russian and Ukrainian are like similar languages, they're different. This is because um, uh, of our Soviet uh, like legacy, uh, the level of understanding in uh, Russian is uh, big, but this was like a turning point for me. Like, wow, like there is like a person that can't understand Russian. And this was like the first uh, the first uh, signal. Second one was that uh, I actually hated to see a Russian flag on my MacBook when I was typing <laughs> uh, in, um, in, um, in Russian. But then I just understood that when you switch to, um, to Ukrainian, you actually find uh, a much interesting uh, space of people because uh, they are more west oriented they uh, know english good and they consume uh, like uh, like global uh, global media and uh, and uh, when and this is actually imp- kind of improved my quality of life because the people i met when i switched to to ukrainian um, uh, they are among much more interesting persons and this is like the big the big problem with uh, with russian is that uh, People think that um, Russia is a part of like of um, like a think tank, of regional think tank, uh, but uh, and we should trust uh, the thoughts from Russia. But actually, this is not true because this is just like recycled ideas from West. And uh, if you and this thing for Ukrainians, it's much important to learn English <laughs> than uh, than Russian and. I think that because I was connected, I, I was uh, I started to learn uh, English when I was four, and uh, I, I I I I could speak uh, English pretty good when I was eight, I guess. So I was all constantly connected with the Western type of media, and this is why the speech to Ukrainian didn't uh, get me a, a big pain of losing content and all of the stuff. So at first it was just like. Um, like a really impulse it was an impulse and then it was like a complete decision for me and now i just don't think a lot of uh, about it it's not like a political decision for me now it's just uh, 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 how i live it's more comfortable to me to to speak ukrainian and uh, actually i actually forgot how to type, type in russian so from for now it's just uh, just my like da- daily uh, daily routine and uh, i actually saw that a lot of people switched to ukrainian in recent years and uh, this is uh, this is just how things going and uh, uh, without any aggression against people who speak uh, russian uh, like a, gr- a great community of of intellectuals uh, musicians uh, art performance and uh, art building. And uh, this is like a, a community of people who uh, made the decision to switch to Ukrainians because they feel like Ukrainians. And uh, I think this is like a, a, big, uh, a, big, a, big, a big big point that people should understand that uh, Ukrainian nation is not ethnic, it's political, and you can be, be Ukrainian by decision. And uh, this is like the big uh, thing that we are standing on. And uh, so um, I think this is like the, the the broader uh, answer that you ask, but uh, I think that it's important to give a context. No, thank you, thank you very very much for that. I mean, I I, I was going to follow. I think you answered actually. I was going to follow up with like, what's the? Do you think there's a single big misconception around the kind of language um, debate in the West or how it's how it's discussed um, uh, in Western media? I mean, the thing the thing I tend to tell people is like, you know, look, there's a bunch of um, there's a huge number of, of Ukrainian soldiers, you know, fighting for, for Ukraine and used to, uh, 
who are native Russian speakers. Um, but do you think that there, is, is there one thing that you think that a way that that issue is maybe misrepresented um, in the West? Yeah, I think that uh, people who uh, it's it's who, people who um, who try to uh, speak on the field of only language are making a big misconception because it's about culture. It's about uh, like uh, it's it's geopolitical question, and uh, it's about of it's about uh, of spreading like. Uh, Russian bake ideas, and uh, in this case, language is a part of uh, of warfare. And um, I think the other misconception is that mm, people think that Ukrainian language can be predatory; that uh, Ukrainians are, are the, the 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 guys who make an offense. But actually, I don't understand how language that was banned by Russians for a lot of years and uh, was tried to be extinguished by uh, Russian government a few times and is still alive, how it can be offensive uh, for Russians. I think um, a lot of people uh, misunderstand that uh, Ukrainians are just trying to build their country, try to build their culture and their space uh, without any desire to make an impact on other countries or other cultures and try to and uh, to, to to bring pain uh, and uh, people and uh, sure this process is uh, is can, can be it's, it's really rapid so um, uh, people I think uh, see aggression uh, where just people try to build their country on their terms, and I think this is completely all right because we are not trying. Uh, we're not trying to tell other people what should what should they do. We're just trying to build our country. Thank you for that. Well, thank you very much, Pavlo. Thank you, Roland, and thank you, Francis. Um, I think we're almost at the end of our time, unfortunately. Pavlo, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you, and thank you for answering all of our questions. Um, it was a, a, mammoth, um, a marathon from, from you, so thank you hugely for your time. Can I just ask Roland, Francis, and, and then finally, Pavlo, for your final thoughts, what should um, our listeners be thinking of and looking to in the week ahead? Well, yes, absolutely fascinating hearing Pavlo. So thank you very much for your time. Just to reiterate what David said there, um, much to, to, to ponder. Um, but I just wanted to, I suppose as a final thought, pick up on on, on something that Pavlo was saying there um, in relation to the Russian language and the challenge of casting off sort of Russian culture, because it reminded me of a piece in The uh, in the Economist, which I would recommend that, that people read. I believe it was in this week's edition. Um, it's an interview with Boris Bondarev, who is a former Russian diplomat, and he talks about how the invasion of Ukraine drove him to resign from Russia's UN team in Geneva. And it's just a very interesting piece um, talking about what it is like being in a sort of a, a mode of thinking, of course, of which language is a part, um, that obviously has huge consequences for how one sees the world. And he talks, and I'm quoting here, as anti-Western propaganda intensified, older diplomats immediately recalled their seemingly forgotten Soviet-era skills. Cables from over the world began resembling old Soviet headlines from the 1930s. I read cables which contained almost only slogans, insults of Western delegations and low-quality cliches. Professionalism was finally replaced by propaganda. 
Now it has become much more dangerous as the Russian leadership relies on such reports and configures foreign policy on information that is either entirely or almost entirely false. And I just think it speaks to, to what Pavlo was saying about the importance of, of truth and the importance of um, what choosing to, to live in a different way of thinking. Um, because that's clearly what this diplomat did. And um, he writes very eloquent about, uh, eloquently about that experience and the implications for doing so on the war and also on calling on on other colleagues to do the same. So I just thought, I think that would be my, my final thought. Thank you very much, Francis. Um, Roland Oliphant, what are your final thoughts for today? Mm, I, could, I could speak at length about what this war might do to Russia and its, and its internal psychology, but um, um, I, I, I'm focused on, on the developments of today. Look, there, there is a meeting going on in Istanbul right now between Ukrainian, Turkish and Russian delegations about getting that food out. And I mean, that, Everyone should be following that. Um, the whole world will be following that. Um, the food issue is a massive, massive issue. And we're going to see more of that. I mean, we talked about the energy issue today, right? And, and what's going to happen in winter. Um, um, keep your eyes um, on that because the inflation, the knock-on effects from this war are only going to intensify, I think, in the coming months. Thank you, Roland. Thank you, Francis. Pavlo, as our, as our guest, would you like the, our very final thoughts? Yeah, uh, I would like uh, just to remind you that during our conversation, there were two, two rockets hit the Parisia uh, city, and the, the guy, the, the, this war is physical. It's not in Twitter. And um, it's, it's, it's actually about people dying and, protect, for, and protecting our country. And uh, I also like um, to answer, I guess, Francis, that um, even... While we're talking about Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian perspective, we still uh, talk about it from Russian perspective and Russian optics. So I think it's really important to uh, mind yourself uh, if you are a part of like a Russian narrative or you're just uh, getting an info about them. So be aware and uh, uh, don't trust any, any source that uh, is connected with Russians uh, and do a proper fact check with that. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.